Clemson Dubcast Saturday, March 5th. A lot going on with Clemson football. Got a chance to visit with DJ Uwe last night. Man, it's only been two months since the end of the season. He looks like a different person. Has lost a ton of weight. Sounds different. It's kind of a sunnier disposition, if you will. Interesting stuff for sure. Also, Clemson's second major junior recruiting weekend. Paul Strelo has all those bases covered, as usual, at TigerIllustrated.com. My good friends Blake Smith and Brooke Archenhold have been part of the podcast since the beginning, way back in August of 2018. They have an accomplished team of personal injury attorneys at Parm Smith and Archenhold, based in Greenville. They are Clemson people, and their skillful attorneys have decades of experience in complicated litigation matters, taking a special interest in medical malpractice, nursing home abuse, and neglect, car accident cases that have left the individuals involved in serious trouble. For a free consultation, at Parm Smith and Arch and Hall, call 864-990-4581 or online at parhamlaw.com. That's P-A-R-H-A-M law.com. Want to share a quick word about Founders Federal Credit Union? If you've been to a sporting event in Clemson, you've probably heard about Founders already. They are the official credit union partner of the Clemson Tigers. In addition to that, all Clemson faculty, staff, and students are eligible for membership as well as IPTA members. Matt Gross is a proud Clemson alum and the vice president for the Clemson market for Founders Federal Credit Union. Matt's office is located beside the Walmart neighborhood market on Old Greenville Highway in Clemson. For more information, go to foundersfcu.com. So, Solero Communications, formerly known as Tandem Payment, is a full-service integrated electronic payments provider powered by leading-edge technology. Solero provides a wide array of merchant solutions, simplified payments. They make onboarding, taking payments, maintaining risk management and compliance, and getting support quick and easy. At Solero, they're all about helping you achieve sustainable growth as a business. Taking payments isn't the only thing your business needs. With Solero's solutions, you can manage inventory, sell products and services via social media, schedule staff, track sales, get reports, and much, much more. Find out more about Solero at solerocommerce.com. That's C-E-L-E-R-O commerce.com. Okay, to our guest, Mark Speed, Clemson Band Director, has done some really important work over the last couple of years as bands here and everywhere abroad have tried to figure out how to play safely during a pandemic. Great stuff. Here we go. Enjoy. Okay, joined by Dr. Mark Speed, the director of bands at Clemson. How you doing, man? Good. How are you? I am great. Um, good, good. I, it had been a man years since you and I had last had last uh, chatted. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess, COVID. Yeah, COVID. Uh, I guess just as a, as a, a means of of, uh, of giving some context here, we we are. Our, our children went to Montessori way back when, Montessori school way back when, and um, uh, on, on Sunday we were at the uh, celebration of life for Patrick McSherry, who unfortunately passed away from cancer. Great Tiger fan, um, just a, a super loyal Clemson fan and an important member of this community. So hated that that was the occasion, but it was great to, to see your face and, and catch up with you. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, it's big, big loss for for our community, um, especially over at the Montessori School, where you know, as you said, our children um, spent their formative years and and under the McSherry tutelage and influence. Um, yeah, just a real a real shocker to lose somebody you know who's relatively young uh, still to cancer, and um, you know, but. But uh, it's insidious and it's out there, of course, and 
Well, it really hits home when somebody you know so well succumbs. Really sad. No doubt. Um, I guess uh, I'll, I'll I'll read off your. Uh, I guess bio, and I guess if you want to go get a bowl of cereal or a cup of coffee or something, uh, <laughs> have a little bit of time here. All right. For, uh, pr- professor, director of bands, director of Tiger Band, conductor of the Symphonic Band at Clemson University, where he administrates the band program, Symphonic, Athletic, and Jazz Bands. Dr. Speed is the recipient of the Clemson University 2009 Dean's Award for Excellence in Teaching, College of Architecture, Arts, and Humanities and three Clemson University Board of Trustees Awards for Faculty Excellence, 2008, 2009, 2012. He teaches a number of courses, including two for the Calhoun Honors College, Aesthetics of Music and Science of Music. In 2012, Dr. Speed conducted the Clemson University Symphonic Band at venues in London, England, for the Summer Olympic Games. Also in 2012, he founded the Clemson Faculty Athletic, I'm sorry, Clemson Faculty Jazz Quintet, for which he plays drums. I don't think, I mean, I think even Dabo Sweeney would say that's a that's a long list of uh, uh, list of accomplishments and, and responsibilities. Yeah, you know, when you hear it back, it's like, oh, I've been a busy boy, and it's even gotten busier lately. <laughs> well, that's really one of the reasons um, that that I, I wanted to have you on, and I was actually I was embarrassed to 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 be so ignorant of of what you have been doing over the last couple of years during the pandemic with your aerosol study and all that, I came home and, and read a number of articles. Um, you've been quoted by the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, Tampa Bay Tribune, I think it is, among others. Um, just a really kind of a really remarkable and fascinating story. So maybe give the, the I guess, the, uh, the, the layman's introduction to, 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 to what you're doing with, with the, I guess, the science of it all and, and how it mm-hmm. sort of facil- has facilitated uh, the ability for bands, not just not just college marching bands, but uh, performers everywhere, I guess, uh, not just in the United States, but abroad, um, sure. as they try to carry on uh, amid a pandemic. Yeah. Uh, so uh, if we back up a few years before the pandemic, um, I was elected to the National Office for the College Band Directors National Association, CBDNA. Uh, I became president in February of 2019, and it's a two-year term, and and the term ends with the um, national conference, so the president is responsible for putting together the national conference that we have every other year. So, um, you know, different presidents have done different things, and, um, you know, the agenda is usually not too long because two years is not a long time and a year of that is really spent planning this big conference. So, uh, in the spring of 2020, I was on sabbatical traveling to our division conferences, which happened in the even numbered years. And of course, uh, the pandemic hit in, in, uh, mid March of 2020. And I immediately put together a committee within CBDNA to look at how we were going to, A, finish the school year in a virtual environment trying to teach band, and B, what would what is this going to look like in the fall of 2020 if the pandemic is still raging? And so I put that committee together. We had our first meeting, and we got into a little conversation about some of the science or lack thereof, there had been an outbreak in a choir in the state of Washington where um, a group of about 60 
older adult choir members gathered for a two or three hour rehearsal and like 52 of them got COVID in that one rehearsal. So that was, that was March, I think March 4th, something like that. So by, um, by mid April, I had put out an, I, I sent an email to some leaders of other arts organizations saying, Hey, does anyone know if there's any studies going on, uh, for performing arts? Because I had done some Googling, and, and I only really found one study that referenced aerosol transmission of a pathogen, and that was tuberculosis in a band classroom in, like, 1950 or something like that, where, uh, like, almost every kid in the class got tuberculosis from one other kid who had it, and it was a band uh, rehearsal. So that was the only thing I could find. So, uh, you know, I I got contacted 16 other leaders in, in the field, and um, nobody knew anything, but one one guy in particular, James Weaver, with the NFHS, National Federation of High School State Associations, they oversee sports and performing arts at every uh, in in every state in the country. Uh, so you know, officials and adjudication and all this kind of stuff. So he contacted me right away. We had met at a conference before, and so we met and said, Hey, what do we need to do? You know? And he's like, uh, he rolled up his sleeves and he said, let's, let's get to it. So we started looking, how, how do we go about this? How do we get some scientific data on what's happening in music? You know, because we have these choir outbreaks and by then, by April, there were a number of other choir outbreaks that had happened. There was a, a bunch abroad and, and a couple more in the United States, but that one in Washington was pretty famous. So, um, we said, uh, yeah, well, I guess we need to contact somebody who knows about this stuff. So I, I had a clue from somebody at, who used to teach at the University of Colorado Boulder and said, yeah, there's a big science team at Colorado, and uh, you should contact this um, scientist uh, named Shelley Miller. So we called her that first week and said, uh, hey, we're looking at trying to figure out what's going to happen in a band, a choir, uh, you know, a performing arts environment. Uh, with, with this virus spreading, and um, he said, "Yeah, we could do that. We have we have the lab and instrumentation to do that. So um, let me let me get back to you with a number." So she came back and said, "Yeah, I think it's going to cost about twenty seven thousand dollars." So this is um, now early May of twenty twenty, and so James and I said, "All right, we're we're going to have to figure out." how to raise this money. So then she came back uh, a few days later and said, well, it's going to be a little bit more than I thought. It's probably going to be about 75000 And we said, all right, well, $27,000, what, what's the difference? So um, then she came back and said, yeah, it's going to be a little, it's probably going to be $125,000. <laughs> and, uh, and then she said, by the way, in order for the science to be valid, we need to duplicate the study at a secondary institution. So double 125, that's what we're looking at. So uh, James and I went to work and, and we contacted um, every arts organization that we could think of. Um, and it's all listed on the website, by the way. Um, yeah, so we raised, uh, James and I raised uh over three hundred thousand dollars, about three hundred thirty thousand dollars in twenty-two days, and our pitch was: we need to find this out because we need to know what's going on. Because literally, the future of music in the schools is at stake. 
You know, like if, if we don't figure out what's happening, they're just going to shut us down. So, um, meanwhile in Colorado, you know, all the campuses were closed. Uh, if you remember, I mean, Clemson just shuttered its doors. Every institution did. So everybody was online. You weren't even allowed to go into your office to, you know, pick up files or whatever. You had to have a, you know, an edict from the Pope practically to, to go into your office. So her lab in Colorado was shut down. She said she thought it was going to open on June 1st and she'd try and get to work as soon as she could. Well, there were delays in opening, so she didn't really get to work until June 15th. And now the, you know, the fall semester was looming. Marching bands are going to be starting up in, in August and, you know, concert bands and everything, choirs, orchestras, the whole bit, theater productions. What are we going to do? So, um, once she got her lab open, we were just pushing them really, really hard to get some data. And um, we had a meeting with them, I think it was uh, late June, where she um, presented, Dr. Miller presented us with some preliminary data coming out of the lab. And sure enough, there was a lot of aerosol coming out of the instruments, you know, which we knew. And if you think about this, going all the way back to March of 2020, I knew right away that this this virus was airborne, or as they say, air, you know, transmitted via aerosol. Aerosol being microscopic droplets that come out of your nose and mouth when you're talking, breathing, yelling, blowing, um, uh, you know, through an instrument, uh, whatever, uh, panting, you know, from exertion. These aerosol particles are coming out of your nose and mouth and, and those are what are going to infect another person if you have the virus. So, uh, you know, a band director figured this out in March of 2020. The CDC never really officially said that until over a year later, even though it was absolutely clear that's how the virus was being transmitted. They were still sticking to the old uh, you know, what what they were taught in med school, which is droplet transmission, you know, so somebody coughs or sneezes, a droplet lands on a desk, somebody else touches it with their finger, let's say, and then they wipe their nose or mouth or, you know, pick up food with that finger, and now they've ingested the pathogen. That's That's the pathway to sickness. Well, you know, respiratory viruses are pretty much all airborne, tuberculosis, flu, uh, colds, you know, they've known this stuff for, for years, but there's always this argument between two factions, you know, sounds familiar, probably, uh, the world is divided on just about everything. So, so the scientists were all divided, yo, it's droplet transmission, it's airborne aerosol transmission. Um, but you know, this choir thing really taught us that it was airborne. So, uh, yeah, she she gave us the information. Yeah, we got a lot of aerosol coming out of trumpets and clarinets, and um, you know every everything we've looked at so far has aerosol coming out the end of the instrument. So James and I, you know, my partner in this endeavor, we were riding herd over this whole science study. We were pretty crestfallen, but but then Shelley said, uh, "But wait a minute, we went down to the." target down the street and bought some pantyhose and put it over the end of the trumpet and guess what? It cut down the amount of aerosol coming out of the trumpet. So we think there's going to be a way to mitigate the aerosol coming out of the instrument. So lo and behold, 
On July 13th of 2020, James and I presented this data to the coalition members, like everyone who contributed money to the study, and then we we released it as a press release and tried to get the word out far and wide that if you put what's called a bell cover, so if, if uh, any Clemson fans remember from 2020 when the band was on the hill, we had these white bell covers on the end of all the instruments. That was to stop the aerosol from coming out of the instrument. Same way wearing a mask cuts down the aerosol coming out of your mouth or nose. So um, we put this out on July 13th of 2020, and a lot of bands were able to convince their administration that this would be uh, you know, a low-risk way of moving forward and not just stopping music. Now, not everyone was able to do that. For instance, in the Big Ten, all their marching bands were shut down. They were mothballed for the entire fall season. And if you remember, also, the Big Ten and I think the Pac-12 said uh, they were not going to do football at all during the fall. And, of course, the ACC and the SEC, and I think the Big 12 said, no, we're going ahead with our football season. So eventually the Big Ten and Big 12 jumped on board. But they never, they still never allowed their marching bands to do anything, which was uh, really a shame. So. Um, you know, we had a we had a really good mitigation strategy to get everybody back, um, but it wasn't it wasn't utilized. Um, so it it was frustrating a little bit that we had some good solid science behind us to uh, you know greatly reduce the risk, and yet some some quarters of the country were saying, "Yeah, we don't care about that. We're just shutting it down." Um, but luckily, you know, here at Clemson. If everybody thinks back to the 2020 season, the, the the real COVID season, the band was not able able to travel, which I fully supported and under you know I, I understood that putting 56 students on a bus for you know four or eight hours or whatever would not be a good idea. So um, all travel in 2020 was out, but you know we met uh, with athletics in the summer and and. Um, you know, they said, here's a, here's a big 11,000 square foot space, the hill, that we don't really know what to do with. What do you think about the band being in this space? And I was like, yeah, let's do it. This is, um, this is great. This is way more room than we'd have in the stands if we had to space everybody out six feet. So we designed a system where we could get, um, you know, not, not the full band, but almost everyone onto the hill and, we rotated about 40 to 60 people each week because um, we couldn't fit everybody. But we were able to learn our halftime shows at our band practice field and then videotape them on Wednesday. And then uh, the assistant director, Tim Hurlbert, was doing editing after that Wednesday uh, videotape on Thursday and Friday. And then on Saturday at the game, at halftime, we would show the video with no sound and then the band would play along with the video live from the hill we weren't allowed on the field uh that was an acc and maybe even an ncaa ruling that no nobody out of protocol was allowed onto the field so so protocol meant something different in 2020 uh you know they were doing a lot of testing for the, for the players and officials and staff um so yeah, we were able to do some semblance of a of a normal season where we learned shows at our practice field, videotape them, and then showed them in the stadium at 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 the real halftime. 
So of any band in the country, uh, Tiger Band was pretty much doing the most or as much as anybody was able to do. There are only a handful of bands that were really able to do what we were doing or come close to what we were doing. Um, a lot of bands, even in the SEC, were only allowed to have 50 or 75 in the stadium on, on game day. So a lot of their students only got to, to go to one or two games for the entire fall. So uh, with Tiger Band, the most anyone had to miss was one or two games. Uh, and and then, um, you know, we had a, a really good presence. So, um yeah, but the, the study, I just had a meeting this morning, actually. We're still, we're still at it. We're still issuing guidance uh, as the CDC updates their guidance. We try, try and provide leadership for, for the profession uh, to figure out what people should be doing in their, in their music and performing arts programs. Uh, even today, you know, mm-hmm. March of 2022. So it, it goes on, and, and we're still gathering data. Uh, we just put out a survey to see what what was going on in the fall before Omicron hit, and we're going to crunch that data pretty soon to see what was happening. But, um, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of stuff going on. I never imagined when I got into music way back when that um, at this point in my life I'd be a published scientist. We've, we've actually pub- published a peer-reviewed paper on this study, and there's a couple more actually in the works. So, um it's been a crazy ride, actually, the last last two years, coming up on the two-year anniversary scene. You said the website. What website are you talking about? Okay, so that's um, the NFHS.org is, is the main study website. But if you, you know, somebody is interested in seeing what's going on, uh, you can just Google um, Google my name and aerosol study and you'll find it. Or you can Google NFH, NFHS. Um, org. That is, um, their organization has um, a lot of resources behind it, including web hosting and legal and a lot of administrative help. Whereas as president of CBDNA, I didn't really have a support staff. And um, so, so James and his team really supply, uh, supplied a lot of the logistics, the behind-the-scenes stuff. So, uh, yeah, we have a whole page dedicated to this aerosol study and um, some of the videos we've put out and, and pages that we've put out, you know, I think in total have well over a million views and you wouldn't look at this stuff unless you were involved in the music profession. So we pretty much hit every corner of the country and uh, a lot of foreign countries. We have people from Germany and France and England, Asia, you know, uh, calling on us to, to ask for advice. So it really, for James and I, it became almost a full-time job doing this aerosol study. Uh, and on top of that, I was uh, trying to manage being president of our um, all the college band directors and do my job here at Clemson as a director of band. So I've been, been really juggling three hats for the last two years. At one point, you were getting like 400 to 500 emails a day, I think I read. Yeah, yeah, it was uh it was absolutely insane. Um yeah, and and uh you know, we were either James or I were replying to every single one. Uh, cuz you know, people were in a panic uh about what to do and and a lot of administrators out there were just living in fear rather than looking at the science of the whole thing. Um you know, it it was really frustrating like 
high school sports, for instance, um, went on as if nothing had happened, but the music programs were all shut down um, because who knows why? Um, you know, like you could say football is outdoors and there's not really much transmission uh, transmission happening outdoors, if any. Um, but, you know, basketball went on. Uh, Certainly not in 2020, spring of 2020, but spring of 2021, I think high school basketball was back at full tilt, um, just like it was at the college level. But in, in high schools, you know, they were still, there was a stigmatism against music programs because somehow we were too dangerous to meet. And, and yet all these other activities were going on. So we were counseling people of how to, how to present the scientists uh, the, the science to the people who were making the decisions. And sometimes we were successful and sometimes not. But, uh, you know, it seems, it seems like uh, we're coming out of the dark times uh, now, which, which is good. Um, but, but back in the, back in the thick of it, it was really touch and go, you know, for, for a lot. And I, I will say this too, the ramifications of what just happened over the last two years will take many years to recover from in the music world. Um, you know, in the, in the band world specifically, typically a student will start in sixth grade playing an instrument. And that, that is essentially the feeder system for the colleges. Th those kids will go on to play in their high school band. And then when they come to Clemson, you know, we can hopefully get them to play in Tiger Band. But that sixth grade class that started in the fall of 2020, depending on the area that you're looking at, it's, it, it was either a 20 to 40% reduction, something like that, in Jeez. the number of kids in band. So as that class moves through the system, you know, we're going to be hit with, with not enough instrumentalists to, to, to maybe fill out the numbers that we want in Tiger Band. And also, that same fall, the fall of 2020, if a, if a kid was moving from 8th grade to ninth grade, so from middle school to high school, a lot of those kids never joined their high school band because the high school band wasn't meeting in person. And so they just gave up. And so we've got two classes moving through the system that are you know, way below what they're, what they're supposed to be. Now we've had a big pickup, uh, you know, since that time, uh, you know, like the new classes, the, the sixth grade class that started this school year is almost back to where it was in 2019, which is great news, but, uh, we're still going to have a, a lower number of students to recruit from uh, as we move through the next few years. Plus the fact that a lot of people don't realize this and you, unless you live in this world, during the 2008 financial crisis, the birth rate in the United States dropped. And, you know, the actuary scientists have known about this for a long time. So that, that group of students is going to reach Clemson in the fall of 2026. And this is this, right around the same time that we're talking about these COVID classes coming through. So um, we've got a looming crisis in recruiting. So we're doing our best uh, we can right now, but, but uh, you know, just doing some prognosticating, it looks like it's going to be really tough for all college bands to keep their numbers up, um, you know, as, as we move into those, those years, the, the, you know, starting around the fall of 26. So we're, we're planning ahead, you know, as best we can. And, um, you know, the, the other part of this is, 
you know, I think I think when people look at Tiger Ban currently, uh, it's it's hard for a lot of people unless you've been around Clemson for a long time to remember, um, you know, where the band was 20 years ago versus where it is now, and also realize the fact that Clemson is it's it's not that big of a school when you compare. You know, schools like uh, Michigan, Ohio State, Texas, which have like 50,000, 60,000 undergraduate students to recruit from. You know, if you're recruiting a, a three or 400 member band from 60,000 students, that's a whole different story than trying to recruit a three or 400 piece band from 20,000 undergraduate students, which, which is what we have here at Clemson. So, um, you know, it may impact us more than it does the really giant schools, and it's certainly going to impact the schools that are smaller than Clemson. Um, but yeah, the, the, you know, COVID is is gonna gonna play havoc with us for for years to come, even as we get back to a normal quote unquote normal situation. How does recruiting work uh, for a marching band? Does it start at the when they when they get here or? Go, go, is it, yeah, that's that's a great great question. Um, most of our recruiting, I mean, we do recruiting twenty four seven, three sixty five. We have a big social media presence. We're reaching out to high school students across the state and country. Um, but really, the main recruiting starts when that incoming freshman class sends in their housing deposit on May first. Or uh, I think it's either May 1st or May 15th. I think it's May 1st. Uh, So they send in the housing deposit, and that's a pretty good indicator that they're going to end up at Clemson. Not always, because some some people will send housing deposits to multiple schools to secure a spot, even if they haven't made a decision yet. But but that's when our recruiting really hits high gear. Is we look at who's coming into to the freshman class, who sent in their housing deposit, and whether they played in band during their high school year, you know, high school years. And we identify those students and then really um, start pitching them hard to join um, Tiger Band in college. So, so to make that transition from high school to college. So, so that May, June, period is really our intensive recruiting period. So we're, we're reaching out via email, via text, um, via phone call, uh, via social media. You know, we have a lot of followers on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, and I think we even have a TikTok page that's underway now. So um, we're, we're trying to reach the high school students where they live um, and get them excited about what we're doing here. And then once they're deciding to come to Clemson to try and convince them to join the band. So uh, is it common for students to, to start thinking about joining the, the marching band only after they've arrived here and only after being solicited uh, through your rec- rec- recruiting efforts? I would say that about half of our incoming f- freshman class each year knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that they were going to play in their college marching band where no matter what school they picked, they were, they were just going to play in the college band no matter what. And then the other half have to be sort of convinced, you know, um, that, uh, Hey, you know, this, you, you've been playing in your high school band for the last four or five years. Um, you, you should really continue because, 
even though it's different at the college level, it, it's a, it's a, in some ways it's more fun. You know, you're going to get to travel to some faraway places. You're going to get to perform in front of 80,000 people every week. Um, you know, with the football team, the way it is now, you're going to get to a lot of postseason travel. So, you know, we're, we're kind of selling it to the people who are on the fence about it. So, so yeah, I'd say about 50, 50, the freshman class is like 50%. Yeah. I'm doing band no matter what. And then 50% we have to sort of, uh, convince them. So what if, what if I'm a, I'm I'm, a, I'm a, an arriving freshman and I I played in my high school band but I but I'm not any good. Um can, can you turn me into a good player? Do you still want me? Well, it, you know, in recent years we've gotten to the point where we do have competitive auditions to join the band and so we are turning people away. Um but we still, you know, we're we're trying to to sell them on sending in their audition and and say, you know, you didn't have to be a superstar in your high school band in order to make Tiger Band, but you know there there is a standard also. So we're telling them, you know, for their audition, don't don't take it lightly. I mean, you want to play your best on the audition so you have a better chance of making the band. Um, so so yeah, no, not everyone gets into the band, um, which is sad for them, but but it's good for us because. Um, you know, the quality of Tiger Band just keeps getting better because it's more competitive um, to get into the band now. Uh, and, and we should talk about, you know, a number of years ago, actually right before, or it might have been the fall, we made the playoffs for the first time. Nobody knew that was coming, but um, I had been in growth mode for so long here. You know, I got here in 2002. My first year of the band was 160. And I think in the fall of 2015, we had hit 340. And um, I had a meeting with athletics, uh, you know, talking about budgets and things. And they, they said, uh, how big do you want the band to be? And I, I sort of, it took me aback for, for a second. I was like, you know, I, I've been just pushing the recruiting and the growth so hard for the last 15 or 13 years, whatever it was at that point. I had never even considered how big the band should be. So in that meeting, we were just talking about numbers and how many buses and how, you know, all that stuff. And I said, all right, how, how about this? I did my doctorate at the University of Texas in Austin, and the Longhorn Band is 356 students. So I said, how about 356? You know, we were only 16 away, I think, at that point. Um, and I, you know, I said, if it's good enough for the Longhorn Band, it's probably good enough for us and they were like okay that sounds good three 356 so we've been actually capped at 356 since uh, the fall of 2015 which is totally fine by me uh you we have a relatively small staff uh in terms of you know like major college marching bands um so so that that was a good number i was perfectly happy with that number and by capping it at that number it did allow for some quality control, you know, so, so a, a competitive audition process allows you to pick the best players. Whereas before that I was taking everyone who wanted to be in the band and yes, they would, you know, if they didn't play very well at the beginning, they might get, you know, they might get better. Um, but nowadays, uh, you know, we're able to be much more selective on who we're letting into the band so that they're coming in at a higher level of musicianship uh, than we have ever had in the past. 
So uh, band keeps getting better. Uh, this, this fall, fall of 21, was uh, a, a, an incredible band. This is the best band I've ever had at Clemson, and, and that's coming out of COVID. So um, this was, you know, I've been really happy with, obviously, the last few years and and the whole uh, postseason experience that the students have gotten to have. And, and myself, I'll, I'll throw myself in there. I'm a huge college football fan. When I came to Clemson, well, even long before I came to Clemson, it was always on my bucket list to have whatever team I was uh, either playing for or working for would get to just be at a national championship game. I thought that would be the coolest thing ever. And, um, you know, I was at Michigan. I, I played in the band at Michigan. That, uh, we never went to a national championship when I was there. I taught at the University of Florida right when Steve Spurrier got there. Oh, yeah, I just missed. I just missed that. I went on to Texas to do my doctorate there. Um, missed missed the opportunity at Texas, and then came to Clemson. And certainly, you know, my early years, two thousand two, when I got here, it didn't didn't look like Clemson was ever going to be on that kind of a stage. And then, lo and behold, you know, we hit twenty fifteen, and and then there we are, going off to Phoenix to play um, to play our, uh, Alabama. And uh, I thought that was the coolest thing ever. Even though we lost the game, I was like, all right, that was such a cool experience. Even though we lost the game, I can check that off my bucket list. And then and there we were in Tampa the very next year, winning on a last-second touchdown. Oh, my gosh, that was, uh, that was insanity. So uh, just, just as a college football fan, not, not as a band director, that, that was, uh, it's been such a great ride the last few years. So how do you keep your cool if you're so invested in it and so interested in it and so passionate about the game going on? Yeah. While, you know, Deshaun throws to Hunter Renfro, you got to immediately <laughs> yeah. snap to it. What's that like when, when you just, it, you're probably trembling? <laughs> just yeah. The magnitude yeah. of what just happened. You're, you're exactly right. And, and um, you know, when I'm standing on the ladder in front of the band, uh, I'm I'm a little detached from the game because I'm thinking about okay if this happens we'll play this if this happens we'll play this um, you know so so you're in work mode so I always DVR the game and then when I go when I get back to my house I put the game back on because I want to I want to watch the game with the announcers and and you know I, even though I'm watching it in live and in person I'm not a hundred percent invested in the excitement of the game I'm, I'm always having to think ahead and and um, stay a little detached but that that um the sean watson passed to hunter renfro if you remember that game you know we always sort of watched that last two minute drive play by play by play but if you watch the real-time version there was a long there, there was a timeout uh before that happened there, there was a long delay you know mm -hmm. like like we're at the whatever yard line, the three yard line, and it's it's third and goal, and you know there's yeah there was a long delay, so yeah I was sort of getting like holy cow this is an insane amount of pressure right now, so you know the timeout is over, uh, the offense steps up to the line of scrimmage, and I, I literally was standing on the ladder maybe maybe twenty five or thirty yards away from Deshaun, I could see his face you know very clearly. And he was so cool and calm. And I, I remember standing on the ladder. I was just putting all my positive energy towards him. I was like, all right, you got this. You got this. You know, you know. And then, 
And then, of course, he, you know, he rolled out to his right, which was a little farther, you know, the other end of the end zone from where the band was sitting. And then I, I saw Hunter Renfro was wide open. And, and, you know, you could see Hunter just cradling that football like, like Deshaun had thrown an infant baby at him. Uh, and then, of course, when, when we all realized he caught it, and, you know, he got, he got hit pretty hard right after that, but he, he popped up and still had the ball in his hands. Then, then I was looking around for a flag. I thought, this is all we need. There's going to be a flag somewhere, you know. Um, I didn't see a flag. I turned to the band, and it was absolute pandemonium. <laughs> I, I mean, kids were crying, uh, screaming, jumping up and down. Uh, I mean, it was absolute pandemonium. So if you ever want to get a chuckle and, and watch that last sequence, it takes us about, I think, 17 or 18 seconds to start <laughs> Tiger Rag after the touchdown. Whereas normally, you know, we, we like to start that, you know, within three seconds of the touchdown, we're playing Tiger Rag. So I just had to wait until they calmed down, you know. Um, and I was, I was excited too. And, and of course you were probably there too. I mean, it was just absolute pandemonium, um, after that touchdown. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy. So I always DVR the games, you know, I have to go back and watch and, and enjoy the game. I usually don't go back and watch if we lose, but if we win, you know, I want to see all the breakdown of all the plays, all, you know, all the replays in slow motion, you know, see what, see what coverage the defense was in and, you know, how, how they're attacking, um, the, the the opposing defense and whatnot, and how Venables is reacting to what their offense is doing. Always interesting to watch that stuff. So the the football team on these playoff trips uh, has a very glamorous uh, travel uh, protocol. Uh, it has like three <laughs> three big. Uh, big jets and when they arrive at the at the destination i remember there being a mariachi band and in, in phoenix and a and a brass band in new orleans the, the band travel routine uh not as glamorous can you I, i'm sure you have some uh some some stories from all the uh, all the traveling to and fro in the post seasons from from 15 to to 20 when it's not like you're going to Atlanta, you're going to Phoenix yeah. and, and 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 uh and, and Northern California and and Miami. I, and you bus to mo- to most of these places, is that right? Uh we yeah, we typically bus um you know, like we'll bus to Miami, uh we bus to New Orleans and Dallas, um and then Phoenix, California, those places are a little too far to bus. So, so we do have charter jets that um, take us to the, the far off places. But if you know if we can reach it in, in you know uh, about a day or so of driving on a bus, we'll, we'll take the bus. So, yeah, I, I do have a funny story. Um, this is a good one. This is from the 2015. Uh, you know, the first time we made the playoffs. So I, I think we beat Oklahoma in Miami, <clears throat> and then. Um, I realized we were going to be playing Alabama and Phoenix. So, um, is that right, Larry? Yeah. You, you remember? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so, uh, you know, we only had nine days <laughs> to figure out how to get, you know, a, a traveling party of 400 to Phoenix, Arizona for this, for this championship game. 
so, you know, right away we're talking with athletics about, you know, how many people on how many planes and et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, they're, they're looking at all the charters. And, um, so we have, uh, we, we end up with two, I think they were Allegiant Airlines planes, one, a bigger one and one, a smaller one. So, so we need two planes to take everybody actually. And we had some spillover onto, uh, one of the, uh, Ipte planes, I think, which was an, another charter, but a smaller one. So, uh, you know, I, I didn't know how to do this in, in my, all my time at Clemson. We had never flown the band in terms of like the whole band. Uh, we, we had only taken like commercial flights to let's say Boston college or the university of Miami, you know, during the school year, we would fly to those places. Um, cause we don't, you know, we don't want to have the kids out of class quite that long to, to drive. So I called around to some of my colleagues who had been, you know, traveling by plane, uh, including the band director at Alabama. And I said, what, what, how do you get the equipment out? And they said, Oh, you just put it right on the plane. Uh, so I'm thinking, okay, cool. Um, uh, so, you know, we, we load up all the equipment in, in, at the Brooks center here and we take, take the buses and truck over to uh, Greenville where the uh, two charter planes are waiting. And, you know, ahead of time I had to give them dimensions and weights for everything so they could do all that stuff. So we get to, we, we get to Greenville and they, they start loading the two planes and it's pretty clear after like two hours that they're having trouble. You know, they're, they're, they're loading this plane for two hours and I keep asking if I can help, but once you're on the plane, you're not allowed to go back on the tarmac. You know, you've passed through security, all this stuff. Um, so after, after a long while, this, this guy comes on, I'm on the first plane, the bigger one of the two planes. And then he's, he's called the manifest guy or what, there's some technical term, but basically he's in charge of loading the plane so that it's balanced and that there's not too much weight. So he comes on the plane and mind you, my family and I are sitting in the front row. There's no first class in this plane, but we're sitting in the front row so we can hear this discussion between the, the guy with the manifest and the two pilots. And they literally, they start arguing about whether or not there's too much weight on the plane. Like the manifest guy is saying, I, I think we're overweight. And the pilots are saying, no, we'll be fine. And, and the manifest guy is saying, I, I don't think so. And the pilots are, and, and I, I'm listening to this discussion and my wife is looking at me and my two kids, my two boys, uh, let's see, they would have been 15 and 11 at the time. You know, they're starting to get pretty nervous. I'm nervous, right? So I stand up and I say, uh, can we take this discussion out onto the jetway, please? <laughs> and so I look at these three people and I'm like, you are scaring the crap out of us. Why are you having this argument? Is the plane going to be able to get off the ground or not? And, and one of the pilots looks at me and, and winks at me. And, and you know, this... You know, so they finish, yeah, they finished this argument, right? So, so, um, the pilots sign off. They're like, the pilots are fine. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, if the pilots are okay with this, I should be okay with this, right? I shouldn't be nervous, you know? And, and meanwhile, one of the pilots looks like he's 18 years old. I mean, literally he looks like he's just out of high school. So, so anyway, they, they close the door, you know, we taxi to the end of the runway and I am to, to say I am white knuckled with my 
uh, you know, my hand squeezing the armrest of the seat is, is an understatement. So we're going down, you know, we, we start the rollout, we start going down the runway and it, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking we shouldn't we be in the air by now? Shouldn't we be in the air? Are we running out of runway? You know, so, so finally the plane takes off and, you know, we, we land in Phoenix. So everyone gets off the plane I, you know, I, I make sure the buses are out on the tarmac. The kids are loading everything on the buses. And, um, you know, I went, I went into the pilots, uh, you know, I went into the cabin. I poked my head in and said, Hey, thanks for a great flight. Um, so tell me about that whole argument about the weight. What was that all about? Was the plane overloaded? Did it feel like it took a long time to get up off the runway? And did it feel different in flight? You know? And they were like, no, those guys are so conservative. This plane, you could have filled this plane with twice as much equipment and, and it would have taken off. This, We were fine. And I was like, I, I sure wish I would have known that before the plane took off. So, um, But yeah, ever since that flight, though, um, we have, it, when we can, which has been every time since, anytime the band flies, we send an equipment truck ahead with with all that heavy stuff on a truck rather than trying to fit it onto a plane because it barely fit and then this whole weight issue scared me uh like you wouldn't believe <laughs> so wow. yeah so you alluded to this earlier just making sure the 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 profile of the football program and all the the playoff trips has been an excellent recruiting tool for you guys basically allowing you to be more selective and the and the quality of of uh, of these issues you're getting. Yes, uh, but I, but I also, you know, I, I also want to point out um, that even before this playoff run started, the band was primed for this. You know, we were already at 340 that that first playoff game. Uh, you know, the next year we were at 356, so uh, we increased a little bit. Um, and as the years have gone on, we've we've uh, turned more and more people away, actually, who who audition. But um, you know, a lot of people make the assumption that well, it's because the football team was so successful that the band is so good and so big right now. But but we were ready when that spotlight hit. You know that that first year um, that we made the playoffs, and of course, you know, we had been to the Orange Bowl mm-hmm. and won the ACC. So it wasn't like the football team was uh, struggling, you know, at yeah. six and six every year. That was not the case, obviously. But um, certainly when the playoff situation arrived, the band was really, uh, as I say, ready for prime time. So, um, you know, we, we were ready for this incredible run that the team has been on. So, um, yeah, very, very thankful um, to be the band director here. It's It's been a great run. Um, you know, it, it was great even before Dabo took over. I, I, I was just having the time of my life. I mean, you know, as, as a young band person coming through the ranks, uh, you know, this is, t- to be a college band director, there's only so many jobs out there and there's a lot of demand for those jobs. So just to have a job like this at any school like this is a blessing, but, but to be on the run that we've been on in, you know, on since Dabo took over has been just, um, just absolutely incredible. So if, if you were to put yourself in front of 160, uh, band members in 2002 and then immediately shift to being in front of 340, 
or 356 in present day, what's the biggest difference in sound from your perspective? Just a bigger sound? Is that pretty much yeah. it? Yeah, well, uh, also just, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll listen to recordings of the band back there, and I, I will say the band sounded great, even as, you know, even though we were 160, but part B of that is it took, it took a lot more work from me to get that 2002 band to sound good, and it took the students a lot more work to get themselves to sound good than it does today because today you know i have a lot of students who are the cream of the crop in the state in terms of you know high school musicians coming into college and so we can actually get through a lot more music a lot quicker today than we were able to back in 2002 so even though you know even though i go back and listen to those recordings and i think yeah the band sounds great um you know, we're, we're able to do more, um, more quickly nowadays than we were able to back then. Um, so yeah, you know, I remember the first rehearsal with that, with that band in 2002, my first year, uh, I was rehearsing the alma mater for 45 minutes straight and I, it still wasn't the way I wanted it to sound. And they were getting really frustrated with me because, you know, they had never practiced the alma mater for more than 10 or 15 minutes before. And here I was, on, you know, after 45 minutes, and I'm like, it's not right. It's not right. You're not playing it right. And, um, you know, they were, their frustration level was, was pretty high with me in the early days. But, um, you know, we got, we got past it. They, they, they figured out what my expectations were and, and how we were going to go about doing all this stuff. Um, and now, you know, now I don't want to say it runs itself, but, um, it certainly takes, you know, we can do a lot more fine tuning than we used to. And, and the band learns new music so much faster than they used to. And we have a lot of new technology that helps us learn the formations as well. That's a whole, that's a whole other discussion. I'll just briefly tell you, we have an app, um, that costs $10 for each student to have, um, you know, we pay for it, but it has everything on their phone. So we are completely paperless now. Everything's digital. Uh, we literally don't even use the copy machine hardly at all anymore. Whereas before we were having to copy music, we were having to copy the drill formations that the band was in, uh, you know, and, and 300, however many copies. I mean, the, uh, the copier bill was something like $12,000 a year. Now we pay for this this app about $3,500 a year and, um, completely digital. And it, it has all these features on it where the students can watch their dot on the field, move from one formation to the next. They can see their pathway. They can see the exact step size that they have to use. They can play it with the music going, you know, the computer version of the music is going on while they're watching their, their little dot move from one spot to the other. Or if we're doing something special and, you know, we can just stop in rehearsal and say, all right, everybody, uh, go to page six and hit the play button and watch what you need to do for the next 16 counts. And then they'll watch it. And so that, that cuts down on the amount of time that we have to teach the, the actual movement on the field. So a lot of new technology, taking advantage of that so our performance has just gotten better and better all the way around 
If you're in the Eastern Midlands and PD area and you're in any way interested in buying and selling a home, commercial property, land, need to consider reaching out to Uptown Realty. They're based out of Sumter and run by a friend of mine, Patrick Enzer, big Clemson guy, used to cover the Tigers in a newspaper capacity, longtime supporter of Tiger Illustrated, longtime listener to the Dubcast. The home buying process should be an enjoyable experience, so let Patrick and his staff do all the heavy lifting. All you got to do is pick up the phone and call 803-774-0435 or go to UptownRealtySC.com. When you're ready for a complete renovation in your home or business, open the door to more with Harris Home and Harris Commercial. Their local experience team will totally transform any room space from beautiful floor coverings to construction to finished details. Harris handles every step of your renovation process, whether it's a kitchen or living room or an industrial or educational setting, like some of the positively stunning work they've done at Clemson University. Go to discoverharris.com and experience a total renovation transformation from Harris Home and Harris Commercial. Another loyal supporter of the Dubcast is Blackacre Law Firm in Greenville, a subsidiary of Parham, Smith & Archenthal. Blackacre helps South Carolina residents achieve their dreams of home ownership by providing experienced, professional representation for real estate closings. Attention to detail is crucial in real estate law. Blackacre is committed to making sure nothing gets by them preparing residential or commercial closings. Blackacre also offers estate planning services for their clients in the Greenville area. Find out more about Blackacre at 864-326-3507. Can you offer a specific example of what constitutes the difference between you walking away from a game or a practice ecstatic, like that was a great day, or gosh, I, I'm not in a good mood, we screwed that up. Like what, what is it? What uh, is it something that's just so minute that that most people don't even notice, but you do, and and the the band does. I, yeah, I think um, that's a great question, Larry. And, and it'd be interesting to see somebody's perspective who's not intimately involved with with a minute by minute rehearsal. Like somebody just came to watch a rehearsal, would they say that was a good rehearsal or a bad rehearsal? And, and I'll be honest, we don't have too many bad rehearsals. We'll have we'll have one occasionally. The thing that constitutes a bad rehearsal for me is I always have a clock ticking in my head, and the clock is ticking down to the next kickoff or or the next pregame show, and and that clock is ticking really loudly in my head. So if if we're trying to prepare the band to do a brand new show in one week, that clock is ticking in my head. So I know I've only got six hours of rehearsal. We we rehearse Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 4 to 6 p.m. I've only got six hours. So if we get, if we start stumbling on, you know, some particular move when we're going from this formation to that formation and they're not quite getting it or it's too difficult, um, you know, and we're spending more than say 10 minutes on that one transition, that clock is screaming at me. You got to go on, you got to go on. And so if, if we reach the end of the rehearsal, let's say we're out there on Monday, four to six and and by six o'clock, I'm like, Oh boy, we're behind. We're behind already. I've only got four hours left before Saturday. Um, you know, then, then I'm coming into Wednesday, like, you know, the kids know, um, I'm like a crazy person, you know, like I'm just 
I've got the whip out and I'm like, faster, faster, faster. Come on, come on, come on. Let's go. Let's go. Uh, so in some ways, I mean, it's, it's not quite as structured as, as the football team practice, but in some ways you probably see some similarities. You know, we're, we're really trying to move them through things. Um, as, as quickly as we can. The whole goal is to get them comfortable by the time we leave Friday's rehearsal that they're comfortable enough to walk out onto the field in front of 80,000 people and not feel like they're going to fail, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, ultimately we, we want to make sure that, that our performance quality just in general is, is at a really high level, but, but at the bare minimum, we want them going out there feeling like they're not going to, uh, stumble around out there. You know, that, that's never a good, I, I've been there, you know, uh, when I was marching at Michigan, I can remember a couple of shows that I went out there. I didn't, I didn't quite have all the music memorized and I, I couldn't quite remember, you know, it was a little dicey, and I I never liked that feeling being out in front of that many people thinking, uh, do I move to my left or right on the next move? I can't, I can't remember. You know, yeah. that's a that's a bad feeling. You know, it's like a wide receiver lining up for a play, and and suddenly they're thinking, am I am I doing a square in or or a gordo on this play? <laughs> I can't remember. You know, so. Uh, same sort of feeling. You want to be super prepared so that you know you're you're thinking as little as possible those thoughts uh, on during the performance. So James Brown uh, was known as a a genius in in uh, in many ways, but one of them was his ability to to hear everything, every instrument on the stage during a mm-hmm. during a live setting. He would even find people for uh, for missing notes or whatever. He would find, find his drummer fifty dollars for I, I don't know not playing the ride or something I don't know not playing yeah. the right way. Uh, but that's with like I guess fifteen people. How do you do that with three hundred and fifty six? How do you hear everything? Well, uh, you know, it's an interesting phenomenon. Um, p- part of it is I I write most of the music that the band plays, or I, I arrange it. I don't I don't compose it, but I arrange other people's music. But I put all the notes down that the band is going to be playing. So I'm pretty familiar with how it's supposed to sound anyway, but there's another phenomenon that comes into play when you're listening to a sound that that's loud is you you tend to miss things because of the overwhelming volume of what you're listening to. So a lot of times in music rehearsal, you know, we'll break things down. So we're just listening to, you know, a certain, certain section. So trombones, uh, let me hear letter a, uh, you know, so, so that I can really focus in and, and listen to what they're doing. And then we'll put it back in context so that everybody's playing again and see if the trombones are fitting in with the rest of the band, uh, you know, stuff like that. So we'll break things down. Um, you know, occasionally, uh, you know, it doesn't happen too often, but occasionally something might happen on the music where, you know, it says F sharp instead of F, F natural. And, um, you know, we'll ha- we'll have to suss all that out in music rehearsal. It doesn't take too long. You know, you can usually, uh, if if you're not hearing it, usually the players will come in and say, "I'm playing an F sharp here. I seems seems like I should be playing an F natural. Which one is it?" And I, I'll look at the music and I'm going, "Yeah, yeah, that should be F natural. Sorry about that." Um, so we'll have that happen maybe once or twice a season, but most of the time. Um, 
you know, we're just, we're listening for certain things. We want them to play in tune. We want them to play together. We want them to play the right style. They're, they're all starting the note the same way. They're ending at the same time, um, doing all those sorts of things. But, um, yeah. And, and, you know, with 350 people out there, they're not all going to play every single note, every single time perfectly. So yeah, there, there's, notes missed but but generally because there's so many people you don't notice one one person missing a note as you would in a smaller group so so, so the, the numbers hide a little bit yeah yeah uh, I'm, I'm as a member of of a couple of bands and having played live music certainly not marching band um mm-hmm. over the over the years I, i'm i'm fascinated at the difference between you know, just in, in live music and musicians, the difference between, um, I guess, theory players, you know, you read music and you're constantly mm-hmm. thinking in numbers and, and then on the other end, there's a, there's feel players and I'm certainly a feel player cause I cannot read music. And, uh, Zach, mm-hmm. Th- Th- Zach Thigpen, who, who, you know, pretty well, uh, he's, mm-hmm. he's actually played uh, in a few of your halftime performances playing guitar. He's, we're in the mm-hmm. same band, the Grateful Brothers, he and I were having this discussion recently, whereas, you know, there, there's some complicated arrangements that, that we play. I guess comp- complicated for us, not for, you, not for you. But, you know, so if there's something in 10 or uh, something that's in, in 6, 8, then it goes to 11. Our, my thing, and, and something we agree on is you can't count it. You have to just feel it. And yeah, yeah. That's, that's our perspective. But I'm curious, from your perspective particularly when you're playing in jazz band and all that, are you able to, are you ever, do you ever let your hair down and just go by feel? Or are you always thinking numerically, like just because of the structure of, of what you do? Yeah, that, that is a great question. And it could only come from a musician like yourself. So <laughs> when I was a kid, uh, you know, let's say 10, 11, 12, 13 years old playing the drums I was learning how to read music, but I was playing along to records, you know? Mm-hmm. So I was, I was basically doing what you're doing. I, I couldn't, if I learned to read music pretty early, but if I was playing along to a record, I didn't have any music to read. You know, I was just pl- listening to what the drummer did on the recording and trying to, trying to imitate what the drummer did. So, so it was, I was living in both worlds, especially early on. Some music I was reading, and then the fun music I was doing by feel. So as time went on, and as I, I got more serious as a musician, it really switched from the feel part to the, to the you know, we call it playing music with your eyes, you know, reading music. Uh, and that's not a good place to be necessarily either, which is why... A lot of a lot of the band members in Tiger Band, you know, they memorize their music because they don't they don't want to be bogged down by the notes in front of them. They they want to be able to think about, you know, what all the other stuff they have to do while they're playing. You know, it's really difficult if you if your eyes are locked in on the music. You know, where am I going to the spot on the field, or how am I staying together with the people around me in this form? So, so, and then on the concert stage, you know, I conduct the, the symphonic band. We play some pretty complicated music. 
I try and vacillate between those two spaces. You know, a, a lot of it is right brain and a lot of it is left brain. And, mm. you know, it's hard to stay on one side and the other, you know. Um, but, but occasionally, you know, if I have something memorized that I'm conducting, I'll, I'll try and, you know, I'll try and just, I don't want to say close my eyes, but I'll try and get my eyes out of the music more so that I can really participate in the music at a different level. Because I think if you're reading it, it's holding you back in some ways from really experiencing the full depth of the music. So in some ways, I envy you, Larry, not being able to read music. You you live in that space 100% of the time. On the other hand, you know, you wouldn't be able to go into a studio and have somebody drop, uh, you know, sheet music and <laughs> hit the record button and say, here we go, <laughs> you yes. know, which is, which is what a lot of musicians uh, have to do. You know, like if you're working in LA uh, on, on a movie soundtrack, they literally are sight reading. It's amazing what those, what those people do. They're sight reading. A lot of the music you hear in a movie those musicians are sight reading that music. Like they, they have the first take. They don't even have time. If they have to go to a second or third take, there is irritation in the studio at that moment. <laughs> and, and so these players are at such a level that they're playing, they're literally reading the music and the recording, and that's the take. You know, they finish, they finish a, uh, a segment. I, forget, I, I, I lost the word that they used, but... Um, you know, a sequence in the movie that goes, let's say it's 90 seconds, it's a chase scene. The cue, the cue. Uh-huh. So a cue might be 90 seconds. Uh, so they run it down, they sight read it, they're recording it, and then they stop and they go, anybody need another take? And everyone's like, no, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> that is, so they literally show up knowing nothing about what they're about to play, and they sit down, yeah. and they, first take, done, over. Yeah, literally, I... I just spoke with a Hollywood musician. Uh, he plays bassoon in the in what they call the Hollywood Orchestra. He's played like on every soundtrack you can imagine over the last fifteen years, and he also he's now getting to conduct more. So he just conducted the orchestra on the new Ice Age movie that's coming out, and yeah, he said sometimes they're bringing out the music, and the ink on the music is still <laughs> wet. Like you can see it's still wet and they drop it on the music stand and they, you know, it's all done with click track now also, but, uh, you know, so all the players have headphones on and it just goes one, two, one, two, ready and go, you know, <laughs> and that's it. So they might, they might have like 30 seconds to go, okay, do I need it? Do I need a cup mute here or a straight mute or what, you know, do I need a plunger like the brass? players are looking at this thing going what do i need and they have all their equipment right there but they'll they'll scan it just to go okay i i've got two bars of rest i'm going to need to pick up this mute and throw it in the end of the bell uh you know so i got to remember to do that um but yeah they don't they don't have much time at all i would be fired by the fourth click (laughs) (laughs) right right i mean yeah, there's a, a a professor at Clemson. Her name is Kim Paul, and she just uh, put out an album, and I actually uh, was honored to to play drums on it. And in cool. my in my case, as we've established, I'm totally clueless when it comes to the to the reading part. 
I had to spend like two weeks listening to it just to mm-hmm. get a feel for it. And even then, I wasn't totally comfortable going and sitting in the studio because then here comes the click. And I'm like, wait a minute, which one's the one? <laughs> it's just like, it's a whole, I mean, it's amazing how the studio versus the stage are just almost two different galaxies. It's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, they are. They are in one sense. And certainly the example I just gave about the movie stuff, that that's true. But, you know, if you think about, you know, a, a band like the Beatles, they would have unlimited studio time. So they can just go in there and, you know, hit the record button. And they're just, they're working out the tune while the tape is rolling. And, you know, if they don't like something, they'll go, they go back and, and they change something and they record again. And, you know, it might take them three months to record one album, you know, so, so the pace is a lot different, you know, in, in that other situation, the movie soundtrack, they're recording music for a two hour movie and the recording session is like two and a half hours. <laughs> so crazy. they only, yeah, they only have 30 minutes of downtime, uh, to, to kind of go back and catch mistakes or whatever might happen. Um, yeah, I, I've played drums on an album, on albums before, like you just described uh, many years ago. I did a children's album with a with a woman who's a really great songwriter for kids' music, and of course she she didn't read music, and so I had to I had to learn everything by ear that she was doing, and uh, yeah, that's that's a whole other challenge. Like if she you know, if she had written out the music or I'd, I'd been able to write some sketches, um, I, I probably could have moved through that process a lot quicker. Um, but, it, you know, it's still fun. It's still fun to play uh, just using your ear, um, but but very different, you know, than having the music in front of you. Did you watch the, the Beatles documentary a couple of months ago? I, I haven't yet. I mean, it's, it's on my list. I have it, you know, queued up, um, but I haven't, had time to actually sit down and watch it, but I, I do want to for sure. Is it good? I, I was floored. Um, <laughs> oh, good, just, good. I mean, and some people, I think, you know, it, it, it was criticized in some corners. And I think that was for people who wanted to be entertained, you know, mm. every minute of it, but that's really yeah, not yeah. what it is. Right. It's, it's less, uh, it's 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 less a story um, and more a, a historical artifact, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And so there, there's there's some monotonous moments, but I I ate every bit of it up, and I just can't believe that that thing sat somewhere uh, for that yeah. long. And it's almost like right. a, a, it's almost like you're in a dream. Yeah. Uh, watching these guys uh, go go through th- sort of their last recording together and all that, you're just like, how did this? How did this sit in some closet somewhere this whole time? I just don't understand it. It's amazing. Well, yeah, along those lines, um, when I was in high school, my, my dad turned me on to Buddy Rich, you know, no, known mm-hmm. at the time as the, you know, the world's greatest drummer. And, um, you know, I went and saw him in 1978 for the first time, and I instantly became infatuated uh, because he was just so astonishing, uh, such an astonishing drummer. And from 1978, the first time I saw him until he died in 1987, I saw him play live 30 or so times. And on YouTube now, there's all these 
you know, people who snuck video recorders into a concert, you know, like a bootleg video or whatever. And some of them are just, they were videotaped for who knows what reason. Or maybe they were live television performances and, and the, the tape sat in the vault somewhere. And they're starting to trickle out onto YouTube. In fact, last night I watched a solo, maybe the best solo I've ever seen him wow. play. I'd never seen it before until last night. So, yeah, these things are coming out of the woodworks, uh, you know, 30, 40 years later. It's just unbelievable. I'm sort of, speaking of YouTube, there's lots of bad rabbit holes people go down, you know, <laughs> conspiracy stuff and all kinds of crazy uh, world is ending antics, I guess, but I'm kind of proud of myself that the only rabbit holes I go down are, like you just said, <laughs> drummers and, yeah. and music yeah. and things like that. But uh, oh, really that's great. Stuff. I'll, t- I'll tell you another one. I-, I went down the rabbit hole. What's today? Friday, Wednesday morning. I was preparing for a class I was teaching, and um, I just I, I got I-, I wanted to look up computer generated music, like a computer that composes music. And I just went on um, YouTube, and I just put that into the search field, and holy cow, there are software programs now that you can tell it to write a symphony in the style of Schubert, and what pops out the other end is just mind-blowing. Wow. Like, if, if I hadn't known... If somebody just said, hey, we just discovered a, a symphony by Schubert, you know, written in 1830, and it, it's been sitting in manuscript form, nobody knew about it, and we just recorded it, here it is. I I don't think I could have told the difference. Unbelievable wow. stuff that's happening now, you know, te- technologically. And, and it's, it's on YouTube, you know, you can find all this stuff there. It's really an incredible incredible tool and and uh yeah rabbit hole filled and there's all kinds of crazy stuff on there too but i yeah like like yourself i try and avoid that but just just from a music standpoint oh my gosh what a treasure trove you know you can go look at oscar peterson Mm. play uh you know just miles davis whoever you want to see chet baker i'm naming all jazz people because that's (laughs) that's my that's my genre but um you know, Queen, you can go back and watch that famous Wembley concert. It's it's incredible what you can find out there now. Is there a popular, I guess, non-jazz act out there right now that, that that's at the top of your bucket list or that's blowing your mind that you really like? Well, I, I tell you, I just um, I just texted my uh, my colleague, Tim, last night that um, Snarky Puppy is touring with Steely Dan and they're going to be in Atlanta on May 1st so I'm like I got to later this afternoon I got to get my tickets because Snarky Puppy I don't know if that's not I guess they're kind of like funk I guess you put them in the funk category but Steely Dan I've always loved loved uh, you know those two guys Um, and but yeah I, I, I listen to all kinds of music and from from pop to rock to funk to, I mean, just, I'm not too crazy about country. Uh, you know, it's just, I grew up in New York city and, or, you know, the suburb of New York city and never was really exposed to country music. And, and, and I still, it's, it's hard. It's a hard sell for me. Um, I don't know why, but 
uh, you know, Buddy Rich, they were willing him in to, he was having a, he had a brain tumor at the end and they were willing him in to do surgery. And they said, uh, Mr. Rich, are you allergic to anything? And he said, yeah, two things, country and Western. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. So yeah, there's my idol. Uh, but but you know, there, there's actually I like. Um, I guess you'd call it a country pop or pop country, whatever. You know, Lee Bryce is okay, and he's a Clemson guy, and uh, Florida Georgia Line. They're they're more poppy than. I mean, you can hear the country in it, but but like this, just the straight up country is is. Um, I don't know. I, it sounds elitist or something, but I, I, I just never was exposed to it much. And for me, it's, it's, it's just not my bag, but I, I, you know, almost every other type of music I'm, I'm listening to on a regular basis. Speaking of YouTube, one of the treasures, uh, uh on there for drummers and anybody is one of Steely Dan's old drummers, Bernard Purdy, explaining the Purdy mm-hmm. shuffle while he's playing. Just amazing. <laughs> what a, what yeah. a character. You know the Rick Beto uh, YouTube channel, right? I'm guessing. I you know think him? I have stumbled onto that, but not. Uh... Oh, you need to you need to check him out because he's he's a big YouTube star now. But but he's he's breaking down all the great songs of the past, and sometimes he has them. Uh, you know, he interviews like he did an interview with Sting, and he did it. Oh uh, gosh, uh, a whole bunch of people. But he's out of Atlanta. But his uh, his YouTube channel is really fun. I subscribe to his stuff. And he he's he's got a great ear, um, but he comes at it sometimes from a theoretical standpoint. So he might lose a lot of people, but um, but yeah, he's talking about grooves and you know this drummer lay down this groove and uh, you know he yeah he's he's really fun. So you sh- you should check him out, Rick Beto B A T O. Mark Speed, uh, it's been yeah. a, a awesome conversation. Uh, thank you for all that you've done that we discussed with the uh, uh, from earlier in the conversation with COVID and and this this community this university is uh, just very fortunate to have you and I uh, uh, really really enjoy your company and, and friendship as well. Well, thanks. Uh, yeah, I, I enjoy your work too. You know, I I think I told you the That's other day. Right. You're I, a subscriber. I'm, I'm a, I'm a subscriber to Tiger Illustrated, so uh, yeah, and, and always enjoyed your writing, and and um, I think you do a great job. Uh, so, as as a Clemson football fan, I appreciate what you do, and also as a fellow fellow musician and playing in Zach's band, Zach Thick Band. Yeah, we did. We've done three halftime shows with him now. I think it's almost time for another yes. one. Yes. But, if, but, if, uh, if, yeah. if you ever if you ever come see us play, just don't make it obvious to me that you're there. Uh, I don't, <laughs> no, <laughs> I'll probably fall apart. <laughs> no, we. T- I remember we talked years ago about you and me just getting together with two drum sets and just having oh, some man. fun. We, yes, we, we still need to do that. Absolutely. Okay? I, I'm in my basement yeah. right now looking at one of the drum sets, so I got another one. I'd be happy to set up anytime. There you go. There you go. We should do it. All right, Mark. You have a great okay. day and a great weekend. All right, you too, man. All right, thanks to Mark Speed. Man, fortunate to know him, uh, this community, fortunate to have him. Truly a, a fascinating dude who is a, an, also an extremely busy dude. So appreciate him giving us an hour of his time earlier this week. Also appreciate the very loyal support of our sponsors for playing a key role in making this happen. Most of all, thanks to all of you for hitting play every week. Really appreciate it. Be safe, everybody. Cheers. Cheers.